Hey, this is Steve Yoder from Ohio Mysteries. I wanted to take a moment before the podcast to remind everyone that this is recorded live on Ohio Mysteries Facebook page. Just search for Ohio Mysteries in your Facebook app, like the page, and you can enjoy watching the live feed as well. You can send in your comments or give us your take on the mystery that night. We'll post them up and talk about them with you. So enjoy this podcast, and hopefully we see you next week. Welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleitz. Hi, everybody. Well, listen, hey, before we get started, a big thank you to our latest Patreon supporter, Tiffany. We didn't get the chance to include her on Sunday's list because that episode was recorded last month. So thank you so much, Tiffany, and all of our generous patrons. All right. Now, Steve, let's get to tonight's 10-minute mystery. Imagine you're out driving in your car and someone is following you, maybe outright chasing you. Someone you know means you harm. You can't go home. He'll only follow you there. You need help. You need protection. Where do you go? Uh... Police station somewhere. Somebody get that. Yeah, that's a you know, that's what Jill Holtzbach thought. Right. On February 6, 1991, Jill Holtzbach was in the flight of her life, and she made the decision to go to the police department, in this case, the Jackson Township Police in Stark County. Now, keep in mind that 1991 is an era before much of the modern-day technology we take for granted. Jill didn't have a cell phone she could whip out and call 911. Video cameras were much rarer. There was no camera trained on the parking lot. Unable to leave the car because her stalker was hot on her heels, she used the only communication available to her. She laid on the horn. Now, before we go to what happens next, let me tell you a little bit about Jill Holtzbach. Most of this research comes from a 2011 article by the Canton Repository. Back in 1991, Jill Holtzbach was a 29-year-old wife and mother living on Massachusetts Avenue in Massillon, Ohio. That's a few blocks from the famous Paul Brown Tiger Stadium. She'd been married for eight years to Jimmy Holtzbach, and they had a four-year-old daughter, Jenna. Now, Jimmy Holtzbach was an Army veteran with service in Vietnam. Jill was his second wife. The Canton Repository story said he was high-strung and said in size, stature, and demeanor, he resembled a wound-up Barney Fife. The Holtzbachs were a typical family in many ways. 
They celebrated the holidays together, took rides and went shopping together, enjoyed a family vacation in Niagara Falls. But they also struggled. A few months before her death, Jill Holtzbach told a friend she was unhappy. There was also some indication she may have taken a lover. Jill kept a small suitcase in her car that contained a change of clothes, nightwear that included a teddy, some cosmetics and personal hygiene items, and a box of condoms. Now, February 6, 1991, was a rainy Wednesday night. Someone was in pursuit of Jill Holtzbach when she steered the 1973 Mercury Comet she was driving into the parking lot at the Jackson Township Police Department and, as I said before, laid on that horn. What happened next was a string of miscommunications that were revealed after an investigation was ordered by Police Chief Phil Parr, who wanted to understand how someone could get away with murder in his department's parking lot. At 10.21 p.m., Patrol Officer John Angelo was driving west on Fulton Drive, right past the parking lot, and he spotted the two cars, one behind the other. He heard a loud noise, thought it possibly a gunshot. Then he turned around at the nearby Church of the Lakes and went back to investigate. But the second car was gone, and he did nothing more. About the same time, inside the station, a clerk heard yelling outside, a man screaming, get out of the car. She went into the police department and told Sergeant Barry Lyons and Sergeant Rick Seifer that it sounded like there was a domestic out front. Lyons thought she meant someone had walked into the lobby to file a complaint. That wasn't uncommon, and it certainly wasn't urgent. So he called dispatch at 10.25 p.m. and told them to radio an officer on the road and have that officer come back and take the report. Patrolman David Zink heard the message on the radio. He thought there was a domestic fight going on inside the station. He was the closest, so he responded, went to the station, arriving in seconds. He parked about 20 feet from Jill's car, didn't notice anything out of order, jumped out and ran into the station. When he learned there was no altercation inside the department, he went back outside and decided to check out that car in the parking lot he first spotted a five-inch hole in the driver's window. The car was locked. He broke away the rest of the window, opened the door, and found Jill Holtzbach dead inside, her body having fallen onto the passenger seat. Authorities have determined that even if officers inside responded to the altercation immediately, there was probably no way to stop Jill from receiving those gunshots. The coroner determined she had been shot with a 38 caliber handgun, one bullet striking her chin, the other her neck. The force shoved pieces of glass into her hair and the fabric of her jeans. Another bullet hole was found in the trunk of the car, perhaps shot during the pursuit. Police found only two shell casings outside the car. Not surprisingly, Jill's husband, Jimmy, was the first suspect. 
At 11.45 p.m., that was about two hours after Jill's murder, Jackson and Massillon officers went to the Holtzbach home, weapons drawn, and handcuffed Jimmy Holtzbach. Daughter Jenna was taken by a Massillon officer who also happened to be a cousin of Jill's. In interviews afterward, Jimmy Holtzbach denied killing his wife and said he didn't even know what had happened when he was being arrested. But when officers handcuffed him, he guessed as much. It's my wife, isn't it? Holtzbach asked the officers. They wouldn't answer him. He heard chatter on the officer's radio and realized they were looking for his Pontiac Grand Prix. He offered that his car was at Perry High School, waiting to be fixed by the auto mechanic student class there. As a matter of fact, the Mercury Comet Jill was driving belonged to her mother. They'd borrowed it while the Pontiac was being repaired. An officer was sent to the high school to look for the car, and he found it. The hood was cold, not warm as if it had been recently used. It was also inside a garage and completely dry. No evidence that it had been driven that rainy night. At midnight, detectives drove Holtzbach to the station. He kept asking, is my wife dead? They told him there had been an accident and she had been taken to the hospital. Detectives interrogated Holtzbach for the next three and a half hours. They said he paced the entire time, only briefly sitting twice. They finally told him his wife had been shot, after which he apparently lost it and screamed wildly. A firearms residue test was conducted on his hands to see if he had recently fired a gun. He turned over the clothes he had been wearing at the time of the shooting. I couldn't find a report that evidence was found in either of those efforts. Holtzbach detailed the events of the day Jill was killed. He said the pair of them spent the afternoon delivering newspapers. It was their primary source of income. I'm assuming it was an afternoon newspaper. You know, the Beacon Journal was an afternoon newspaper into the late 80s. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. So after they were done delivering the papers, they put Jenna down for a nap and folded the sofa bed and had sex. The family later that evening had dinner, and Jill left for a girl's night out. She was supposed to be going to a Jackson Township lounge with her friends. Holtzbach told officers Jill's time with her girlfriends was the key to a happy marriage. Meanwhile at home, Holtzbach watched a couple of basketball games, spoke to a friend on the phone about a youth softball league, and phoned another friend's house, all while looking after four-year-old Jenna. Police were willing to try almost anything to solve this case. They contacted the military, asking if satellite images were available. They even placed their own officers and the clerk under hypnosis to try and extract any detail they could get about the night of the murder. Two years after Jill's death in 1993, Jimmy Holtzbach volunteered for a polygraph test. Police reported the test showed he wasn't telling the whole truth. But Holtzbach again denied killing his wife and said the test result was an anomaly. But there was another suspect in this case. 
1991, a man named Michael Bednars admitted to having sex with Jill Holzbach the night she was killed. He said they said their goodbyes at 9 p.m. That was an hour and a half before she was shot in that parking lot. Bednars told police he and Jill had known each other since they were teenagers, that they had rekindled their relationship, and she had come to visit him at his masculine home that night. That might have explained that strange suitcase in Jill's car. Jimmy Holtzbach had told police he knew about that suitcase with her overnight clothes, cosmetics, and condoms. He said Jill kept those things in her car because little Jenna had gotten into them before, which seemed like a strange reason to be packing those things in your trunk. And it didn't really explain the condoms because Jill and Jimmy didn't need them. Jill's tubes were tied after the birth of Jenna. Anyway, when the Can Repository did their feature on this case in 2011, they found Bednar's serving time at the Lorraine Correctional Institute, a three-year sentence on a felony domestic violence conviction against his ex-wife. Prison officials wouldn't allow reporters to interview Bednar's at that time. But the Kent Repository did reach his mother, Dolores Bednar's, who was still living in the same house where her son and Jill reportedly met the night she was killed. She said her son never left the house that night and was at home on the couch the moment Jill died. Solving this case has been a challenge. Detective Chris Rudy said he talked the case over with seasoned homicide detectives in Akron and Canton, took the case file to the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, and worked with experts at the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Identification who specialize in cold cases. Rudy wouldn't reveal his favorite suspect, but said in his mind he has no doubt who killed Jill. But the Stark County prosecutor said there wasn't enough evidence to pursue the case. And it didn't help that in following up with people police had spoken to back in 1991, some admitted that in their original interviews, they had lied. In 2011, Jimmy Holtzbach once again denied having killed his wife, telling a reporter, I'm not the greatest person in the world. He acknowledged run-ins with the law since his wife's death, but all of them of the nonviolent variety, theft, passing bad checks, receiving stolen property. But I don't have no murder on my rap sheet, he said. Jenna Holtzbach, who grew up to be the spitting image of her mother, had a daughter she named Jillanna after her late mother. Even though she was only four the night her mother died, she remembers her dad being at home watching a basketball game and is absolutely convinced of his innocence. She said, I know my dad didn't do it. That's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-size Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week and may all of your mysteries have happy endings.
Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.